It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Off Air. Um, we are completely relaxed in this new setting. Or were you here last week? No. No. Okay. No, we were still doing radio. Although, ironically, uh, because I was co-hosting with a seasoned television professional, oh, yeah. we could have been here. Should have done it with her yeah. last week. Yeah. So when when you're not here, do you, do you ever listen? What? To you? To the podcast? No. No. Okay. Why? What did I miss? Well, Louise was a lovely, lovely. Oh no, co-host. gosh, she's great. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, no, it wasn't Louise that put me off. <laughs> was it me? Well, no. I, in all <laughs> on, no, in all honesty, if I'm not at work, it's like if you work in a post office, you wouldn't go in for stamps every yeah. day that, that you, the week you were off. I never you? listen when no when right, it's you. So, yeah. There, but anyway, Louise mentioned was was yeah. being you last week, and yes. we um, we did have we had quite a laugh because we're all oh, very different laugh, women. Yeah, no, don't start going like that. Look, my, I've gone all defensive. You have. You've crossed your arms in a okay, very, very defensive okay, relax. way. Relax, go on. Well, so Louise does all of that endurance, yeah. sport and stuff like that. And so we had lots of chats about fear. And, mm. you know, and so she's got a book out at the moment called Fearless, which is lots of women doing what I think are just really extraordinarily daft things, like caving and potholing. Wow. to conquer their fears oh, but there's just, just a, keep the fears yeah there's a very nice email from Sean uh, can I read it yes go on I feel that I need to ask permission now we're in vision for everything no you, you don't have to ask my permission but uh, hang on Louise's case is that extreme risk taking or rather confronting your fears is the right thing to do yes so yeah. it's the feel the fear and do it anyway okay kind right. of thing which I'm yeah. it, I think I believed in as a younger woman but I really I, it doesn't work for me now mm. so Sean is of a very similar disposition uh, just to say that I missed Jane obviously mm. uh, but wasn't Louise brilliant loved her mm. although as positions on life go I'm definitely a feet in the silt of the riverbed with fee kind of girl mm. so I was trying to explain that my resilience comes from my feet being so stuck on the ground and in the river belt river bed, bed yeah. all covered in mud and silt mm. that I couldn't possibly get out mm. so that keeps me grounded okay yeah uh, and Sean says uh, thank you for owning that approach to life so that others can feel so too the whole YOLO which is uh, if FOMO's fear of missing out YOLO is what's YOLO you only live once you only live once thank you yeah. Rosie and I Did say thank goodness for that 
<laughs> Carpe diem, you haven't lived today if you haven't done something you're afraid of. It's so bloody exhausting. Especially if you have a full-time job and kids and a mortgage about to expire and a slightly leaky pelvic floor, to which the main point of my email. So we talked a lot about this too. I've had trouble for years since birthing my two children, who are now seven and four. I had postpartum pelvic floor physio, which was semi-helpful. To access the support, I had to get a referral from the Women's Bits Clinic at the hospital. This involved an excruciating appointment with a male junior doctor who looked about 12 and was visibly nervous. At one point, he asked me to grip his finger, not with my hand. He looked so uncomfortable that at the end of the appointment, I almost wanted to tell him that everything was okay and that things would get better. And I deeply sympathise with that because I think... Sean, you've recognised that for some doctors it can be unbearably uncomfortable mm. to talk about stress incontinence with women, and especially if you're a very young doctor, and perhaps, you know, you've only learned about it from textbooks, so you don't understand, you know, quite how bad the problem is, and it's embarrassing as an old woman to have to explain it. Mm. I mean, there's always a first time, isn't there? There just has to be, necessarily, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so I, I do feel, yeah, extreme yeah. sympathy for the junior doctor, and for Sean, I should say. Um, but Sean goes on to say that um, she went to another really good specialist who gave her a range of different exercises. My favourite is stomping to train and tone the reaction of my pelvic floor muscles. She has me stomping my feet around the house. I have to tell you, it's really liberating. Stomping makes me channel my inner teenager and it feels particularly cleansing after a day of navigating children's arguments, husband's irritation, cycling kit, and managing, I'm with you on that, managing challenging work situations. To be honest, I would prescribe stomping to any woman in her 40s, regardless of the strength of her pelvic floor. Right. Uh, and she's delighted that you're back. Uh, maybe your listeners could try a bit of stomping as they eat their pumpkin seeds and cranberries. It can really help. Well, have you seen this email about pelvic floor and singing? Yeah, you do that one. Okay, well, it's from Sarah who says, um, I'm a singer and a singing teacher. That's probably the significant thing, she says, who really believes in whole body singing. You may like to know that using your pelvic and abdominal muscles correctly really supports your singing and takes attention and pressure away from the throat, the shoulders and the jaw. It's made a huge difference to me in every walk of life. I really recommend singing, says Sarah. So whole body singing, throwing your whole self at it. Do you ever do that? Um, I do have the, yeah, only in the, well, not whole body singing, but I do sing quite a lot. I think sometimes I sing out of nerves. I know that my sister is consistently irritated by my low-level humming in family-type situations. And yes, I know you have commented before on that. Yeah. I think I make these noises, yeah. You do? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so sometimes, even here in the office, and I don't think that's because you're nervous. I think actually when your head's a bit bored... I you start, start humming. humming, do I? Okay. Yeah. So keep busy, lady. Keep busy. <coughs> Anne says, I'm currently on a cruise to Iceland and Greenland, and today at around 3 pm, we cross the Arctic Circle. Mm. Uh, <laughs> after this point, I did a mile walk around the promenade deck with my headphones on and a downloaded episode of the podcast, the one with Karen Slaughter playing in my ears. I was just wondering if I qualify as your most northerly listener. Uh, well, yeah, you must do. If well, you cross the Arctic Circle. Where's she heading for? For Iceland and Greenland. 
I would have thought so. Maybe someone can beat that. Uh, and Anne says, I enjoyed the interview with Karen and have added her to my ever-growing list of authors to try. I think I'm going to run out of time to read Fresh Water for Flowers before it's discussed on the programme, but I hope I can join in with the next title. Now, Fresh Water for Flowers is our book club book. Yes, it is. It's quite a whopper. I think it's what is well over 400 pages, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit of a chunk. Yes, it yeah. is. Uh, quite a, it's quite a physically small book, though, so don't be too put off. I mean, it's it's long-ish, but it's not a big book. In its paperback form, yes. it's in, yeah, it's the small yeah. version. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a pocket-sized yeah. book. And yeah. I think you've got to get 100 and definitely 100 pages into it mm. to really fall in love with it. Because yeah, I wasn't sure about it at the start, not, and you're I'm, not sure I'm about not there it. Yet. No, no. I'm not there. It's partly because I'm also reading something else at the same time, which is a book I do recommend because I've got no. properly into it. I can't recommend another book. Not until we've got this one out, because oh. because otherwise we're going to get okay. we're going to get stacked up, aren't we? You're terrifically stern. <laughs> right. uh, I tell you what, Alan's very angry, and he's currently oh. in Kazakhstan. The two oh, things might yes. be related. Let me just read because yeah. Alan needs his moment. Yeah. Um, good afternoon, Jane and Fee. Your show is replete with hypocritical anti-male propaganda. Is this your effort to redress the balance of generations of bias in life against women? Yeah, partly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you realise that you collectively verge on misandry? Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan is very keen to point out that he is neither misogynistic, fee or chauvinistic, or in any way anti-women. And he illustrates this point by uh, telling us that he enjoys listening to Aisha Hazarika, Kathy Newman, Ruth Davidson and Charlotte Ivers at all. Just tone down your rhetoric and, oh, it gets better, use your considerable talents to explore the topics of the day in a more balanced fashion. Well, that's well, told that's, us. That's told us both. Thank you, Alan. Actually, in all seriousness, Alan, tell us why you're in Kazakhstan. Um, because I, I would love to know um, what's going on there, what you're doing there, and just what it's like. I haven't got a clue about any of the stands, have you? I've never been to any of the stands. No, exactly. No. So, yes, Alan, be part of us. Yeah. Join our family. And also, what I would say about the misandry thing uh, is that for every time you hear something, Alan, where you think, oh, they're having a bit of a go about men, I suppose this might be the first time that you've listened to a radio programme presented by two women. So you might be hearing something that's often said but just not often said within your earshot mm. in the same way that I think you and I have got very used to over the years hearing men talking to men within our earshot. Absolutely. Is that a nice way of putting it? Uh, yeah, I think you... Alan, have you got the message? <laughs> no, so it's not... Yeah, no, you're right. It's just that for years men talked at us not just on the radio, but in almost every other aspect of our lives as well. Yeah, so this and might be a little bit of the pendulum yeah, swinging. Yeah, just gen- ever so gently going in the yeah. other direction. And but it's only for a couple of hours. And don't think that we, don't think that we hate men, because yeah. we, really, we really don't, actually. We, we hate the, the twits. We hate the prats. Yeah, but not um, the others. No, I mean, I'm going to be smothering my décolletage in Kate Moss's Cosmos... What was it again? The product we were trying on with Josh Arnold tonight. I think it is. Is it... Osmos or Kate Moss. Cosmos. Cosmos. But it's the mythic tears of a Greek legend. Of Kyrios. That's right. Yes. Is that Nick Kyrios? So none, none of this makes any sense no, at you all had to, if, you, if you weren't with the feature. But are you smothering yourself in that in the hope of literally a man sticking to you on the way home? <laughs> I'm hoping to attract a mate on the Northern Line. <laughs> <laughs> what are the chances? 
Well, I think, I think unfortunately, uh, they're quite high, but I would be worried about the quality of the catch that you keep us posted. Were you talking about yellow cars last week? Yes, we were, because Fiat uh, have introduced a no grey car policy because they just want to be more fun. No grey car? No grey cars, okay. no. Well, Joe, who's in Poundbury. Now, Poundbury is that... Is it the one that King Charles built? That's right. It's yeah. his, like a model village. Yes, <laughs> with real people. With real people. It? It's not like that place out on the M40 that everybody goes to once. The little miniature one. The little t- well, toy town. You went there once, it was so dirty. Because <laughs> it had really, really big litter the in a tiny, tiny town. So if someone threw, you know, their dead magnum yeah. wrapper in the whole town square, it was just... It looked enormous. That's a very real danger with model villages, isn't it? There's uh, Beck and Scott. That's the name, Thank isn't you. It? Yes. yes. There's one at Southport as well. Well, there certainly used to be. Um, they're a weird kind of attraction. They're so strange. Oh, those teeny, but then tiny I think worlds. they're exactly the same category as Madame Two Swords. Why you would want to go and see yeah. lots of people basically encased forever as candles, I just don't know. Well, say what you like about Madame Two Swords. There's a queue outside there, whatever the weather. There There's really a, is. Well, there is. You're absolutely right. But I wonder how many of those are repeat visitors. Who can say? If you've been more than once to Madame Tussauds, that's another subject we can discuss. Jane and Fee at times.radio. Jo is in Poundbury and she says, we used to have a gorgeous yellow 2CV. It attracted flies like nothing on earth, squished all over the bonnet. I agree with Fiat. I call that colour undercoat grey. It's just boring. Thank you, Jo. This one from Lucy, just catching up on my off-air backlog. And your chat about school trips reminded me of when I, age 14, went on a day trip to Boulogne from, now you can say this, I can't, Heckman Dwyke. Heckman Dwyke. Heckman Dwyke. I think. In West Yorkshire. Uh, we set off at about 3am. We had time to wander for an hour or so before practising ordering a croissant and then heading home. I don't remember anything about it other than the fact that I had recorded a special cassette to keep me company on the journey. What was it? I Am The One And Only by Chesney Hall. Good song, though. Back to back on both sides. It was 1991. So she only had yep. Chesney Hawks. I Am The One And Only, all the way from West Yorkshire to Boulogne and back. I do like that song. Not I wonder much. whether you'd like it after that. You probably wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, now, we were contacted before Glastonbury by uh, a listener who was going for the first time, uh, and she's been back in touch. It obviously took her a week to process what she went through at Glastonbury, and she's now made contact again. Um, it is Caroline. Um, you wanted to know how two ladies in their 60s got on with our first Glastonbury. We had an incredible time, despite the piercing sun that gave us a tan to last the rest of the year. The Glasto vibe was really so positive, it needs to be taken out into the world. I heard many Liverpudlian voices. Well, you would, you see. <laughs> at a place that absolutely everywhere. buzzes with positivity. You're always going to find a scouser. Uh, there were many, many happy stories to tell, but I'll just relay a couple to avoid the Glasto gloat. Um, well, actually, she's only really got one, which I'm going to mention. A Friday started with a 5K run or walk around the site. This formed the last part of a run challenge, raising 250 quid for Maggie's. That's the cancer support charity. They were excellent to me uh, when I had cancer in 2019. This alone was an incredible experience at six in the morning when the site was really quiet. I had a quick chuck a bucket of water over me shower, coffee and a croissant. That eased us into the day and we were out, out, out. We enjoyed the hives, the lightning seeds, then we went on to the pyramid stage for Texas, who was superb. 
and the Chernups, who of course ended up being the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters yeah. yeah. Um, by this time, nine o'clock, we were done. Our tired feet took us back to base camp, about a mile away. But as we all know, when camping, you adapt. So I opened up the case from the camping stove, poured a little boiled water and cold water on each side, added some shampoo, and voila, a foot spa. It was heaven. And Caroline has helpfully attached a lovely photograph of her foot spa. Wonderful. I hope the camera's got that. <laughs> um, it, it does sound amazing. And then they went out again. She went, I can't believe this. She went to a rave at Arcadia. Caroline, it sounds to me like you got the Glasto bug very early on. Well, now Brilliant, you've started actually. your festival journey. Well, we don't want to overhype this. Will you end up at Glastonbury next I, time around, which is meant to be a kind of all-female female, lineup? Yeah, isn't it? well, all-female headliners. Yeah. So Taylor, Rihanna, I think. Taylor, as well. yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and the Spice Girls. Well, you heard it here, not first, but you've <laughs> heard it here that that is probably next year's Glasto headlining lineup. Yeah. Will you go? No. Okay. No, but I'll certainly whittle on about it, and I'll watch it on the telly. But we are going. I think we're all right to say we're going to Latitude. We are going to Latitude. Yeah, yeah. So we are festivaling ourselves. It's my up festival summer in yeah. Suffolk, and we've had so many conversations, haven't we, about our accommodation? Because that's where we are at in our mid fifties. It's not, you know, how many acts should we stay for? It's <laughs> what kind of a mattress will be in the yurt, and do I bring <laughs> my special pillow? <laughs> Well, I mean, seriously, it's not it, uh, travelling even for a night away from home. Away from the pillow is difficult. It's a big yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. I've asked if I can bring my dog, Nancy, and, you can't. and they've said no. no. I'm not sure they even contacted the authorities well, about that. They just said no. Uh, to think that they might. I'm here to tell you, you're quite right, they didn't. Well, but they disappeared and then came back in the room and told you you couldn't take Nancy. I think they literally just went outside, counted to ten, and came back in. Yeah. Didn't they? Ten and no. <laughs> But none of the performers or the artists will be there. Because we're going before the festival. Because we're going before the festival. Yeah, we're we're pre-festival talent. We're pre-loading. Yeah, we are. Early festival goers. We're basically Latitude's prinks, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, So so I thought Nance might be a welcome distraction, but unfortunately not. But yes, we are from, we're we're coming from Latitude. So you're going to be a festival veteran by the end of the summer. Yeah, we'll be at Latitude with a small amount of attitude on the Thursday before it all starts. Yes, and will you be bringing your own moist uh, wet wipes and toilet roll? Because we had a long conversation about that this morning as I'll well. I'll be taking everything sanitary that may in any way come in handy. Are you going to turn up with one of those proper camping flushable toilets? My own flushable facility. <laughs> yeah, it's quite possible. I don't know why you find that funny. You'll be the first person in the queue to use it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to. Uh, right, can, before we go into West Street, oh, yeah. who's can our I, big guest? Who is yeah. our big guest? Can I just add something to our new section? Do you know what our new section is called? Uh, no. Focus on Hitchin. Oh, God. <laughs> because right, why are we focusing on Hitchin? Well, for a podcast. Where was Louise Minchin from? That, no, I don't think she's from Minchin Hitchin. from Hitchin? <laughs> no. no, I think she's. Was she, no, she's from. She went to school in Berkshire, didn't she? I don't know where she's originally from. But Hitchin, for, for a podcast that does actually have a global audience, yeah. uh, we have focused on Hitchin quite a lot. It's a very small place in Hertfordshire. Yeah, I'm sure it's lovely. Not known, I don't think, for very much. But it crops up a lot, so here we go. Uh, I heard Fee mention how often listeners write in from Hitchin, and I wanted to share my memories of Hitchin. Uh, this comes from my Sophie. God, this is even more obscure. Memories of Hitchin, right. <laughs> 
I now understand it's a vibrant and really quite classy corner of Hertfordshire and a very desirable place to live. But in the 1980s, when both my brother and I were students in London, we used to travel home to St Ives, Cambridgeshire via Huntington by train. Keep up. The sectorisation of British Rail was underway as part of this Huntington was downgraded from intercity to outer suburban. Oh, was it? Yeah. What a terrible blow. I think I remember that day, actually. <laughs> we sometimes could get a fast train out of King's Cross, but more often we mm. had to get a fast train as far as Hitchin. Right. Stop it. And wait on a coal platform for a trundler to transport us on to Huntingdon. Apologies to the residents of Hitchin, but I'm afraid my brother and I developed a very negative attitude to it, having only seen the post-war platforms on winter evenings. Once he muttered the immortal line, they call it Hitchin because when you get stuck there late at night, that's exactly <laughs> what you feel like doing. Okay, During those heady days of the mid-80s, John Major was MP for Huntingdon, and some suggest that he advocated for a fast train to Huntingdon. In 1983, he moved Bloody on hell, to there's something for everyone here, isn't it? Yeah. And that sectorisation took over. Yeah, so if you're a John Major completist, that email will yeah, does it for you major day. Yeah. I once did one of my packages. Do you remember packages back yes. in the day of the radio, radio reporter? Yeah. Radio feature. Had to have at least three different elements no. in it. Uh, and I did a fantastic package on the fact that a company from Northampton uh, had uh, won the contract, I think that's overstating it somewhat, to put a high security fence up mm. around John Major's home okay. once he became Prime Minister. And they won the contract. They won the contract and the fence was a good six foot higher than the previous fence that had been there. And I was tasked with turning that into a three and a half to four minute feature. Wow. I only managed to turn in two and a half minutes and I got into trouble for it. And when the editor said, could you make this a bit longer? I had to say, God, the fence is higher, but I'm afraid there's nothing else to say. Because quite often in those packages, you had to get one, per, you know, one perspective and mm. then somebody to challenge it. And well, people in the area were generally supportive of the slightly bigger fence. No one gave a shit. No one gave a shit. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, there we are. Um, yesterday's news today uh, in the company of Feed Lover. Great. Uh, I've never wanted to hear Wes Streeting more, I don't think. You're very nice. Well, no, I'm just, you know, come on. Bring back Minch. Uh, So, Wes Streeting has got what I think is going to be volume one of his memoirs out. uh, Realistically, how many volumes could you get out of your life, do you think? Out of my life? Yeah. Blimey, about seven. Oh, oh, yes, maybe so, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, silly me, yeah. (laughs) Whereas I'm more of, you know, tenth of one volume, I think. Anyway, he has got quite a family story, hasn't he? He does, and the title of his book, so in case people don't know who Wes Streeting is, because we do have a global audience, uh, he's the current Shadow Health Secretary. Yes, so he's in the opposition party. He's in the Labour Party. But I'm not giving much away, I don't think. What are you Um, going to say? Well, there's the possibility that Labour win the next British general election. Are you reading some runes? Mystic Jane Jane is speaking. Yeah. Yeah, and we know what a track record she has. So. He's also the current MP for Ilford North, oh, and right. he was born in East London to uh, teenage parents. So his mum was 18, I think his dad was either 18 or 19, uh, and the two families could not have been more different. So on the one side, uh, his grandparents were at times in prison. His mum was actually born in Whittington Hospital because his mother was in jail at wow. the time okay. and was taken to the hospital to give birth. And then on the other side, on his father's side, uh, that family was very much uh, Tory. 
So he's got interesting lineage. He's fast-tracked his way, hasn't he, to the shadow mm. front bench. And lots of people do tip him as being a future powerhouse within the Labour Party. So we had plenty to talk about, and we started with Wes explaining the title of his book, which is One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry-Up. Well, One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry-Up, but one boy is obviously me. The two bills are my two grandfathers. Dad's side of the family, Bill Streeting, Royal Navy World War II veteran, civil engineer all his life. Very much a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, play by the rules, serve king and country in the war, love queen and country throughout the rest of his life. Uh, and a solid working class Tory. The only time he voted anything else was liberal, quote unquote, to keep Labour out in Tower Hamlets where he lived. And then the very different Bill, my mum's dad, Bill Crowley, um, in and out of prison throughout my mum's childhood, throughout my childhood, uh, string of convictions for armed robbery, uh, kind of East End crook, really, um, originally from South London. Very loving grandfather, nonetheless, but led a very different life. And then the fry-up, uh, it's not just I love a fry-up and it's not an East End affectation, it's um, I, I was an accident. Uh, my mum and dad were very young when I was conceived, 17 and 18. And my mum was under enormous pressure to have an abortion, which initially to her made sense. The appointment was booked, but she decided not to go through with it. And she knew that if she told anyone, she would come under massive pressure to go to that hospital and go through the termination. So she did what she was explicitly told she could not do, which was eat before the appointment. She cooked herself full English breakfast, like she would never normally do this. And that was her insurance policy to make sure she couldn't go through with it. So it is literally the fry up that saved my life. So that's where the book starts, which yeah. is a wonderful way to engage the reader. But also it just tells the reader so much about your mum, because actually that is a a big, big decision for a teenage girl to take and to take on her own, even though she did have a very close family around her. She did, but the, the abortion was solving the problem and she was unsolving the problem. And I remember when I turned 17, having a conversation with my dad saying, it's only just dawned on me that when you were my age, you were a father. And that, I cannot imagine how terrifying that must have been for him. Um, so I don't judge my dad or anyone else in my family for thinking that, you know, my mum having a baby at that age was not a good idea. And as I went through my late teens and 20s, I sort of thought my parents really did sacrifice a lot. They were a young couple, a poor couple, a short-lived couple. Can you tell us a little bit more about your mum? Because it's her side of the family, isn't it, that has the criminality that you have referred to. <laughs> yeah. And actually for her mum, that was a terrible Oh, it was. It, it was. And, and fascinating thing for me, sort of talking to my mum about our family history, sort of found it hard to write about my nan and the life she led before I was born. Because it, it's almost like a different person because she had ended up in prison herself for getting involved in my granddad's criminal activities. And my nan was carrying my mum in prison. So my mum wasn't literally born in prison. She was born up the road in, in Holloway, um, uh, Whittington. in Whittington. Yeah. She was in Holloway prison, shot the road at Whittington Hospital. So she gave birth to my mum in hospital, chained to the bed with prison officers surrounding her. And it, well, that wasn't the only consequence of my granddad's criminality. Their relationship was pretty toxic, pretty violent. And my mum grew up around that 
violence and it had a big impact on her childhood. How did the two families get on? having been brought together by the arrival of you? Because what is so clear from the book was it's just this enormous village of love yeah. that you were brought up in. But that doesn't mean that, did the, I mean, did the Bills get on? Um, the Bills didn't spend a great deal of time together. My, my granddad streeting was almost like a surrogate father to my mum, and they had that close bond. Um, the families did get on always and um you know the reason my mum and dad met was um through my aunt and there's that sort of network of friendship and um but they were they're very the streetings and the crowleys are in some ways stereotypically stem families but very different stereotypically stem families i mean you know um bill streeting my granddad on my dad's side very representative of the streeting family it kind of started off as a very nuclear east end family all lived on the same street um, all had that same work ethic, going out, work hard, play by the rules. A family that's largely conservative voters. Um, my mum's side of the family, um, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that Bill Crowley is representative of everyone else because uh, fortunately we don't have loads of criminal records on, on that side of the family, but um, a very different family in terms of politics, um, outlook, um, and there was a lot of you know, ducking and diving and bobbing and weaving and, you know, didn't have a lot of money and food to go around. So it was a case of, oh, look, this has just fallen off the back of a van. Or, you know, my granddad would bring home his spoils of his uh, criminal endeavours. So it was a very different kind of environment. You know, my mum and dad's childhood were very, very different. When granddad pops, my mum's dad, whenever he was, um, whenever he was doing a legitimate line of work, he still found the way to to basically come into some nice goods. So there was, I think, well, one point where every um, doormat across that bit of the East End had this lovely buffalo kind of doormat that, you know, because he happened to be working for the company and doing some shipping for them. So some of the mats came his way and he was he was a very he was very generous with yes, other people's the belongings. The Robin Hood of doormats, yeah. <laughs> and tell me a little bit, though, about the poverty because, uh, you know, it, it would be easy to kind of romanticise that, but, but for you as a small boy... It was so real yeah. and really unpleasant. At one point, you described going back to the flat where your mum had been living and there was such an infestation of fleas when you walked in and actually looked like you had socks on. Black socks. Um, so many. I remember Alan Johnson, who's one of my Labour heroes, uh, once saying, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty to give the Labour Party a good backstory. You know, I, this is not a misery memoir and um, I had a happy childhood but there were moments of real hardship. And as I got older, I was becoming more and more acutely aware that we were different, even relative to the standards of the East End at the time. You know, me and my mum laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. It was pretty scary. So now when you're sitting in a room uh, where people are talking about how to solve the issues of poverty, and you know that you're not with people who have had that experience of it, what do you say to them and how do you need to convey to them what the reality is? Or do you not need to have lived it to be able to be empathetic and understand it? You don't need to have lived it to be empathetic and to understand. But what I do see in so much in politics is the lack of lived experience in the room leads to really bad decisions. You know, I look at Rishi Sunak and the Conservative cabinet 
And look, I, it's not that I think Rishi goes into work saying, how can I plunge more kids into poverty today? But because he doesn't understand the sorts of struggles that family goes through, he doesn't, he doesn't understand what £20 a week lost in universal credit would mean for those families. And when I hear some Conservative MPs saying, oh, it's just about making better choices, I just think like, what planet are you living on? Um, and we can always try and pick out the stereotypes of the, lay the layabouts, the scroungers, the spongers. And as with all stereotypes, there will always be people who take the mick, try and fiddle the system. Some examples of that in my book, actually. Um, but that's not representative. And actually, what I see a lot of in my own constituency today are people quite the opposite, slogging their guts out in three jobs or more and not making ends meet. And the, the tragic irony for me today as a constituency MP is there are kids growing up in the same poverty that I experienced growing up. But the council house that I was desperate to escape from is something they now aspire to because they are in temporary bed and breakfast accommodation. They are being shoved from pillar to post. And what opportunities are there then for the sorts of interventions that made the difference in my life and meant I ended up in parliament rather than prison? You know, I had a great state education with amazing teachers. Well, how do teachers build those relationships if the kids are moving from school to school? And I think on so many levels, things are worse now than they were in the 1980s. And it breaks my heart. And that's, I just think there aren't enough people in the cabinet who understand that. Just while we're on the topic of experience, uh, were you to form the next government, how would you acknowledge that there are very few people in that shadow cabinet with real experience of government and taking the hard decisions? And have you undergone some kind of training in order to fill that gap? We're not in a too dissimilar situation to where the Blair team were pre-1997. I mean, we're fortunate in that in Keir, we've got someone who came into politics late uh, and has run a big public service. And that's why I think sometimes he lets, he lets the veil down a bit and shows, actually, I think a bit of disdain that he has for the way our political system operates and his lack of patience. We've got some brilliant people in the shadow cabinet like Pat McFadden, who have been there in government and driving things right from the heart of government. And for the rest of us, I think certainly in my own case, I am blessed with a very wide ranging cast of former health secretaries and health ministers in the last Labour government and people who've worked at senior levels of the Department of Health and the NHS over those years who have been so generous with me in terms of their time, their expertise, in my team, I've got people like Liz Kendall, who's been a special advisor in the Department of Health, Gillian Merrin, who was a minister. So, so do you want to one day lead the country? Is this a very eloquent 311 page job application? No, it's not. And I, I must admit, I've... Are you sure? Sort of at a time, I'm at a point now with sort of like, would you like to be the leader of the Labour Party questions where I like... To, I just... Would it it's so tedious now because I think but that... would it matter if you did? What if I want if if what, you if you said yes one day I'd love to. Um, I'll tell you why. Like I've now become a bit fed up with the question. Is when I answer honestly, and like part of this book is about saying to working class kids from backgrounds like mine, the sky's the limit. Reach for the stars. Don't let anyone hold you back. So I'm never going to be um, sort of apologetic or ashamed about having ambition. But what really annoys me is that 
you know, when I answer these questions directly and honestly, as I always try to do with questions, it then like the the other week there are a whole load of headlines. You know, where Streeting reveals ambition to be prime minister, which I've got so much ribbing from my friends saying, "Oh, and this counts as news, does it?" The the truth is, I have a leadership role in the Labour Party, and if Labour wins the next general election. Being the Secretary of State for Health with responsibility of taking the NHS from its worst crisis in its history to making it fit for the future is a huge challenge. And if the only thing I ever achieve in my life is doing that one thing, then I will consider my time in politics and public life very well spent. I will die a very happy man. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Off Air, where our guest this afternoon was Wes Streeting. Uh, Wes also details in his memoir his experience of trying to balance his understanding of his sexuality with his faith. And he writes about his fear of God and the fact that a friend of his carried with him a letter written by his priest that told him it was okay to be gay. Yeah, this was my, this was my, first, um, my first ever boyfriend you know, and I shared how I felt and why I had been in the closet for so long. And he shared with me a letter that had been sent to him, which really moved me and reassured me. I still wasn't reconciled to that conflict. I still hadn't reconciled that inner conflict between um, faith and sexuality. And actually, it has taken me years since then to get to a place where I am now, 
where I think there is no contradiction. And and, I, and it's been a it's been a long journey because it sort of started off with me thinking I tried desperately hard not to be gay. I, I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that being gay is not a choice. That like people saying you know the old nature and nurture debate we used to have. All I can tell you is that I not only did I not choose to be gay, I chose for many years not to be gay, and it was painful and harmful when I see other people who've suffered in that way. And, um, you know, do I think Jesus would be on a gay pride march? Would he be marching at London Pride? I don't know if he'd be marching, but I tell you what, he would be absolutely taking on the, the, the people who shout fire and brimstone from the sidelines. Because the thing that saddens me about the way people feel about those of us in public life who are religious, not just Christian, but across the board, there are a lot of people out there who aren't religious who look at religious legislators and fear, fear us. They fear that we're going to vote against a woman's right to choose or fear that we're going to vote against LGBT equality. And I'm very proudly in favour of women's right to choose. I obviously vote in favour of LGBT equality. I'm one of a minority of MPs in Parliament who's voted to support assisted dying. Um, I don't feel any contradiction between those positions and my faith. And in fact, I think the fundamental message of my faith and actually representing a very religious constituency, a wide range of faiths, these are messages of love, inclusion, social action. Yeah, but while the Church of England would still deny you the opportunity to marry in church, you wouldn't possibly understand that. Yeah, I think, I think that's... That's why, um, you know, to disagree with Alistair Campbell on comms advice, which is a bold move, um, I do do God. And Alistair Campbell famously said to Blair, you know, you know, or about Blair, we know we don't do God. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is important to speak up and show moral, ethical leadership. Um, I, I understand, actually, the Archbishop of Canterbury's really difficult role he has to play between holding together the Church of England and the Globe, Global Anglican Communion. Um, and I don't envy him in that task. And when politicians attack the Church of England for speaking, and my favourite is when politicians say, oh, typical Archbishop of Canterbury virtue signalling. If there is one person in this country whose job it is to literally signal virtue, it is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of the moral leadership the Church of England shows even if I'm not entirely comfortable with the teaching on equal marriage. I take your point about virtue signaling. It's a clever way to put it. Uh, can I just ask you about Stonewall? Because yeah, you work for Stonewall. Stomping Ground, University. yeah. yeah. Uh, so there has been some controversy about their advocacy within corporations of uh, gender rights, of trans rights, and quite a few companies who had employed them to give them guidance has since withdrawn from that. And that includes the House of Lords, the NHS has been asked to by Steve Barclay, uh, the BBC. If you were still at Stonewall, what would you make of that reversal by those companies? And do you think that Stonewall has got it a little bit wrong? I think this neatly follows on from our last discussion, actually. Um, when I worked at Stonewall, equal marriage was going through Parliament. And I actually worked in the education team leading our campaigning uh, around tackling homophobic bullying in schools. So I wasn't directly involved in it, but I had a ringside seat and I kind of watched um, as Ben Summerskill, one of the most effective lobbyists I've ever seen, did the hard graft of not just marshalling votes in the Commons on the Lords 
amongst the people who were already on side, all the quiet cups of teas, the conversations with people, some cases were directly opposed and in other cases were unsure, skeptical or anxious, particularly in terms of religious freedom, you know, would we be compelling churches and mosques and synagogues to perform equal marriages? Would we be suing priests who don't marry same-sex couples? All of those sorts of issues. And there was a, a you know, a fear of a conflict between the rights of same-sex couples to get married and the rights of religious communities who believe marriages between a man and a woman to practice their faith without state interference. And what Stonewall did was bring those people around the table and work effectively with the government, which also had to compromise because David Cameron had a majority of his own MPs against him, so he needed cross-party support. And compromise was found that maybe not everyone loved, but everyone could live with. And I've tried to take the same approach on um, trans rights and the challenges we have around with, for, for people who have issues with their gender identity, who just want to be accepted, included, and to be able to live their lives free from discrimination and prejudice. Lots of feminist groups, not all, but lots of feminist groups who uh, say, hang on a minute, there's a conflict here in terms of sex-based rights of women, women-only spaces, and those moments and those spaces and those times where it might not be appropriate to have women's spaces that include trans women. And these are tricky, thorny, sensitive issues that need to be managed in a far more thoughtful and sensitive way than I think we've seen with the raging culture wars. Some of the really ugly, clumsy language and the cesspit of social media where I just see kind of battle lines being drawn all the time, including among people I respect um, within my own party on the left of politics, but also this applies in the Conservative Party and across the spectrum. And so what I would like to see is a sort of resurrection of that approach we saw in equal marriage, which is bringing people together, creating the space where people can air their concerns without fear or prejudice. There are a lot of kids and young people out there in particular who are questioning their identity, who are afraid, and who are picking up the papers or turning on the telly and feeling afraid of politics and political Stone rhetoric. And, and uh, other groups sometimes make that worse by encouraging such a hyper-individualism and self-identification in a world that might need to ask exactly, as you're saying, everybody to compromise a bit, and also a world that will need legislation at some point. So you can't just well, be having... Yeah, so onto, onto, the, onto the sort of where I think there's some, um, you know, there's plenty of criticism to go around on this one. You know, look at what happened with the gender recognition legislation in Scotland. It is a really good example of why, as legislators, you can't only legislate with good intentions. You do have to legislate with some worst-case scenarios in mind. And there were lots of women out there who felt silenced and gaslit when they raised concerns about prisoners, for example, who then we had this case of a man who, as far as I'm concerned, was blatantly abusing or seeking to abuse loopholes in the law, having perpetrated violence against women. Basically saying like, well, you know, I may be a, ma a male sexual predator, but I'm defining as a woman now. And that's why we've got to make sure there are safeguards in law and protections. And, you know, uh, in terms of 
self-reflection and criticism, you know, I don't mind admitting that if we'd talked about these issues a few years ago, I would have just gone, hang on a second. Look, trans men are men, trans women, some people are trans, get over it. This is all kind of whipped up, you know, let's just all just calm down and get on with our lives. And actually it took me some time to be a bit less defensive, to listen to friends who were raising concerns and have a bit of humility to say, oh, hang on a minute, it's a bit more complicated than I've given credit for. And I think, and, and that goes that there's plenty of that to go around. I, you know, I, I sort of see some of the language on social media um, uh, and like say, you know, the term turf, for example. Now, turf is used as a kind of term of abuse towards um towards feminist raise and concerns. And actually lots of those feminists have said, okay, I'm gonna wear that as a badge of honor. And what I see with that sort of language are people drawing battle lines and picking yeah. a side. And I don't wanna build battle lines, I wanna build bridges. We're streeting. We're streeting there. Yes. <laughs> We're streeting there. <laughs> We're streeting. No, do you, so seriously, um, you asked him a question about whether or not he wants to become prime minister. Yes. It is a really tricky one that because you obviously can't say yes, very much so, because that implies that you're very keen to elbow out the current individual who's likely to become Prime Minister of Labour win the election. But equally, if you say absolutely not, that hints at a lack of ambition. Which and it will come back to haunt him. And it will come back to yeah. haunt him. If yeah. you stand, because people say you're a hypocrite. I interviewed a couple of years ago Kemi Badenoch, who is thought of quite frequently now as a future Tory Prime Minister. I mean, this is going to be in quite some years' time, I would imagine. And she categorically denied him. She said, I couldn't think of anything worse than becoming Prime Minister. So I very much hope that when she runs for <laughs> leader of the Conservative Party... Someone can dig out the clip. Someone can dig it out, yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a question you've got to ask, and it's a question they cannot answer. Hmm. But I think... Um, do you know what? It was the only time during the interview that uh, I sensed... Uh, Wes Streeting making a slight shift to the I'm you know I'm really not happy to talk about that because actually he's a very very verbose politician mm. you know he's got it all in his head he absolutely knows you know I don't think any question well, can really an operator, throw isn't him yeah, yeah I think he's incredibly polished mm. uh, uh, you know which is obviously one of his great kind of um, political attributes but he definitely got annoyed with that question for exactly the reasons you said. It's impossible to answer. It's going to be quite a job, actually, if you if they do win the election and he becomes health secretary. People are going to expect an enormous amount quite quickly. I think in every department, it's not going to be possible. Yep, and because so. it's just the it, you know it's the it's the gap between expectation and reality mm. that I think any opposition party inevitably mm. falls into if they win an election after a very long term uh, being in opposition because you can spend so much time you know promising a, a better world mm. but you haven't actually had to do very much to prove it yeah, so, so this I, much we know i think he's done the right thing in getting his memoir out now because he might not be such a popular figure if they win the election in let's say two and a half years time mm, yep it's a good read though i is mean it? that is an extraordinary life mm. story uh, and um you know, his story of, of education taking him out of poverty and into, you know, the world that he's in now, uh, you know, you can't knock him for that. It's the absolute truth. And I don't knock no, him. No, good. And well that's done. partly to please Alan in Kazakhstan. <laughs> uh, but also... <laughs>
We'll oh, Alan, you. don't dislike us. Come on a journey with us. Come on the fun bus of feminism. There's plenty of room at the back for men. As long as they behave themselves and don't speak. And as long as you don't criticise a woman driver. <laughs> oh, we wouldn't do that. I'd like to know what the roads in Kazakhstan are like, in all seriousness. I think some of them would be absolutely terrible, and presumably some of them have been heavily invested in by other countries, maybe even in the West. If you're in a stan and you have something to say about them, seriously, I want to know. Jane and Fee at Times.radio. Well, I think that concludes our, our very first filmed edition of Off Air. It does. And I can, I'm now fiddling with my hair, which I wear will be distracting. Well, you can borrow some of my uh, Kate Moss Cosmos oh. drops because they, no, she also says you can use it for hair. Okay. I'd, a couple of dabs of that and you'll be restored. No, I don't want to be bothered on the tube on the way home, but I look forward to hearing your stories <laughs> of people who've been caught in the trap of your... How do you say it? De, de, I can never say Decol- it. <laughs> yeah, décolletage. My pipetted décolletage. <laughs> yes. I'm not actually sure I've got a décolletage. No, it sounds like a very, very difficult and slightly unwanted third There's album. There's almost certainly an ointment for it. Right, have a very good evening. Good evening, Jane. I can't do any more. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. I thought you did that very well. Can I just say I think that your television nodding is exceptional. Thank you. It's really. Well, I'm getting just. It's encouraging you. It's very, very good. Yeah, it's just to try and encourage you. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.